let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11. I want to talk this morning about one of the great challenges we face as we walk with the Lord, especially in this culture, especially as we do it when it comes to um, standing for our convictions within a culture that is really morally compromised and really um, redefining itself every day, increasingly away from the Word of God. Now, we have been called not only to be disciples of Jesus Christ, which is more personal and more um, internal, maybe we would say, more of a, more of a personal uh, approach to following Christ. We're called to be disciples, but at the same time, we're also called to be his witnesses, and we're called to be his ambassadors, which is much more public. It's much more open. And what that calling does, because being a disciple of Christ, you can do that anywhere, but to be a witness and to be an ambassador now forces us out of um, any inclination we might have to just be insular with our commitment, to be private about who we are, to be private about what we believe. God has called us out, and he has said, now you have a responsibility now to openly declare your love for me and to openly declare your relationship with me and to openly declare that you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you want to tell others. So this dual calling of being disciple, which is personal, and being a witness or being an ambassador, someone that represents somebody else, now brings us out in the open. Now, that calling isn't always comfortable for us, and we don't always um, feel ready to do that. And one of the great temptations that we have as believers is that we won't be open about it, that it won't be something that we readily are forthright about. And the devil knows that, and he tries to work against that and tries to prevent us uh, from being open about our faith. And he uh, brings situations that will try to compromise that commitment and try to, to push us against that. Now, if we love the Lord, I mean, if we really love the Lord, it shouldn't be a problem. We should want to talk about the Lord. We should want to praise the Lord because we love him. But if there's hesitation there, if there's, if there's some sense of not really loving him like we should, not really giving him ourselves to him like we should, there will be a little bit of a reticence and he'll try to exploit that. So we have to push against that and we have to recognize the need to influence other people. Now that's why what we're doing this morning is so powerful. Getting this assembly together, having a group of people that, that stand in the presence of the Lord this morning and praise Him, to have the choir sing, Hallelujah, you're worthy. And, and that's not just a song that we picked because it's nice and it is melodic and it, and it sounds good. It's, it's a song that we're singing out of conviction. The songs we sang this morning as a congregation should have been songs of conviction. When we sang those, we're not just looking at the screen saying, Well, what's that say? And there's the next line and I hope I can hit the note. That's where most of us are, right? I hope I can hit the note. I'm not sure I can. Those are expressions of our heart. That's what praise is. And that's the power of this congregation this morning, is that we can come together and praise the Lord and talk freely about Him and hold the Word of God in our hands and say, this is what it says, and have our conviction affirmed and strengthened and challenged this morning. Now, that's 
easy to do when we're around people that are like-minded. But this is just a couple hours a week. You add in Wednesday night, three, four hours a week, maybe a Bible study, five, six hours a week. That's if you're really uh, putting out your level of commitment, five, six, seven hours a week, let's say. But now we got another 155 to go. So who are we influencing in those 155 hours and who is influencing us? Because it's easy to stand for our conviction here. It's easy to hold the word of God in our hands here and say, yes, I love the Lord and his word is good and it teaches me. But when we're out of this environment, who and what is influencing us? And do those people that are around us, do the people that we're being influenced by, are they pushing us toward a greater faith in Christ, to greater holiness, to greater love for the Lord, or are they taking away from it? Are they strengthening us in Christ, or are they weakening our commitment to Christ? And we've got to ask the question in reverse. The influence that we have on other people, does the influence we have strengthen them? Does it draw them toward the Lord, or does it lessen their commitment? When we interact with somebody that does not know the Lord yet, Do we draw them closer to the throne of grace or do we uh, pull them away from it? Now, these are really important questions. And these are the questions we want to work with this morning, especially here from Acts 11. We're going to look at a couple passages because our culture right now is in moral decline. And I don't think we can argue with that. It's not getting better without a significant work of the Holy Spirit in our midst without uh, repentance and humility and crying out to God by tens of thousands, millions of people. Honestly, without that happening, it's only going to keep declining. And that's not being overly pessimistic. It's reality. And it's what the Bible predicts will happen. The Bible doesn't predict that society will become more moral. The Bible predicts that society will become more on decline. Even in the church, 2 Timothy, which we'll look at in a second, says in 2 Timothy 4 that, that the church will decline. That Christianity will become more compromised. So we're fighting against a very strong tide this morning. And that should depress us. It should make us say, well, what's the point? Why should we do it? I'll just have my own faith and be on my own. No, the the church's response needs to not be depressed and discouraged. The church's response needs to be more determined because the Holy Spirit is still powerful, right? God hasn't lost his power yet, and he never will. So he doesn't say, wow, church, what can you do? You're fighting against the tide. It's going to get worse. I told you it's going to get worse until I come back. So just just ease up and wait. No, he's the Holy Spirit still saying, you got a job. You've got a commission to do, and you need to be fervent about it. For that to take place, for us to be on fire and, and working hard for the Lord and really impacting people, we have to have a holy, edifying pres- uh, uh, influence on other people. You and I as believers, if you're saved this morning, if you love Jesus Christ, you and I have to have a holy, edifying influence on people. And we need to be around people that have a holy, edifying influence on us. That is crucial. It is absolutely essential for us. Now, this passage here in Acts chapter 11 shows just how important both of those actions are. The context is that Paul has been saved, chapter 8. 
Paul has been saved on the road to Damascus. He's given his life to Christ. As soon as he's given his life to Christ, he's been given the commission to be the evangelist to the Gentiles. And then you get to chapter 10, and Peter, who's in Joppa, uh, gets his uh, calling affirmed at the house of Cornelius. We've studied this passage before. Where Peter kind of has to be convinced as really the main apostle of the Jews, he has to be convinced that this new commission, this new expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles is authentic and God approved and that they're going to be the ones who are most receptive to the gospel. At this point, there's been a huge cultural shift that started at Pentecost. Now the Jews that mostly rejected Jesus, but some accepted him. Now the Jews, the, the emphasis is off of them because they've had thousands of years to have a relationship with God. Now God says, we're going to go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are going to be far more receptive than the Jews are. But the Jews have to be convinced of that. And Peter, as the main disciple, when he goes to Joppa, sees a vision and God says, it's time. Paul has been saved. He's going to be the man evangelist. Now you guys need to get behind my plan to go out into the Gentiles. So at the start of this chapter, look at chapter 11. We won't read it, but just scan it. Peter reports this to the church in Jerusalem. He wants to alleviate any hesitation or resistance that the Jews might have had about the Gentiles being part of the body. And then as soon as that happens, we see Jewish believers spreading out into the Gentile world. That was a big step. Let's not underestimate how important that was because they had been very insular and very much just in Jerusalem. Now the Jewish believers start to go out into Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey and and Asia, uh, excuse me, uh, the northern Mediterranean area, up into Greece and those areas. So, So the gospel starts to go north and west. And as they go, they get to a place called Antioch. Let's start in verse 19 of chapter 11, I accidentally changed my page to Romans 3, which is just a fantastic book of Scripture. Maybe we should study that. What do you think? All right. I'm not ready to preach that, but the Lord's good, right? Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, that Paul had been part of, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then, verse 23, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It's interesting that the intent of these scattered Jews as they go north and west around the top part of the Mediterranean, that their intent was never to talk to the Gentiles. Their intent was only, as the text says, to speak to other Jews. But once they got to Antioch, some guys came up from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they said, you know what, you guys are only talking to the Jews. We need to talk to the Gentiles. We're in Gentile area. Why are you only seeking out Jewish people to talk to about the gospel? So they start to talk to the Gentiles. Now, that was very counterculture. 
But the Spirit of God here stirred their hearts to reach out to people that didn't know Jesus. And notice, look at verse 21, that when they took that step of faith, when they took that step of obedience to obey the Lord's commission, notice the next phrase. It says that the hand of the Lord was with them. Oh, every time I read that phrase in Scripture, I get excited. What an awesome phrase that is. How many of you would like this week to know that the hand of Lord is on you? I mean, really, that, that God's going, here, Rhodes, I got you this week. Beyond even just that I'm saved and redeemed and that I'm a child of God and the Holy Spirit's reside. Beyond that, where, where God really says, here is what I'm doing. That's what we see in verse 21. It says, the hand of the Lord was on them. And there's really nothing better than that. There's really nothing we should pray for more fervently and seek more diligently than that. So when the hand of the Lord is on our lives and on our church, our spiritual influence, listen now, will be beyond anything we can imagine. All our plans, all our strategies, all our intentions, all our service, it it, it will mean a lot, but it won't mean nearly as much as when the hand of the Lord is on it. Because when the hand of the Lord is on it, God works in amazing, powerful ways. How do I know that's true? Look at the next verse. It says, a large number who believed turn to the Lord. That was not a result of a strategic planning session. That was not the result of a of an organized plan, not that they're bad, but the, that was not the reason that that happened. The reason that people got saved, the reason that people turned to the Lord is because they called on the Lord and said, we need your help because we've got to go to the Gentiles and God blessed that. Remember, their initial plan wasn't even to go to the Gentiles. But when these men from Cyprus and Cyrene came up and they said, no, this is important, and they were obedient to that, God worked. Now, that wouldn't have made them very popular. That wouldn't have gone real well, especially among the Jews who had come to Antioch with them to to, to kind of just minister to the Jews. So uh, we've got kind of a difficult situation. But look at how the Lord provides here. And look at how important it is to do what Barnabas does. Because when the church in Jerusalem hears what's going on, hey, something's going on in Antioch. We heard that people are starting to get saved. Some men came up, started talking to the Gentiles, even though we just went out to the Jews. There's something happening. When that word gets back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem says, we need to send somebody to to oversee and minister here, and they send Barnabas. And Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. He was a man who was known to be an encourager. I wish I was more known as an encourager. What a great quality that is. So the son of encouragement goes up to Antioch. And we'll look at what he did in a minute. But once he saw what the Lord was doing and how he was moving, he went to get Paul in Tarsus, and he brought him back. And for a year, they just preach and minister. Can you imagine what that would have been like? How awesome that would have been to have Paul and Barnabas in your church for a year, just teaching and ministering and making disciples. And that's where the church really starts to get momentum. This is where Paul's ministry launches for the first year. Now, look at what Barnabas does because his actions are really where we want to focus this morning because there are at least four characteristics that we need to exemplify as believers. And I'll go through these quickly, but there are four characteristics that we need to exemplify as believers as we influence other people. 
And just as importantly, these are the characteristics that we need to look for and we need to surround ourselves with in the people that influence our lives. There are people that influence you on a regular basis. Family, friends, um, people at work, people in church, all kinds of people influence you. The people that influence you the most, that drive your beliefs, that encourage or weaken your beliefs, what are they like? And what are the characteristics that they're bringing to the table in terms of your relationships? Because as believers, we need to be people of influence. We need to be uh, impacting people's conviction and drawing them to God. And at the same time, the people that are around us need to be doing the same thing. So let's look at a couple of things Barnabas does here. The first one's in verse 23, where we see that he encouraged them with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now, we studied that concept of being resolute last week. Remember, we talked about being steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what Barnabas brought to Antioch. When he showed up to a a pagan culture mixed with Jews that were still a little bit resentful that the gospel might be going to the Gentiles, and Gentiles who were new to the faith, kind of trying to figure out what in the world was going on and who this Jesus was and why their lives have been changed. He, He walks into what we would call a mess. And as he walks into this mess, he brings an unmovable conviction. And he brings a strong, steadfast faith. And he brings a maturity to the situation that stirred the hearts of the people. And notice what the focus of his encouragement is. It says his encouragement was that they would remain true to the Lord. Now, we talked about that last week from Psalm 119. And if there is... Uh, one inclination that's constantly going to tempt us as believers, it's to not remain true to the Lord. I love this phrase here. It means to hold fast to and to continue. In other words, there's a fixed position of conviction that we're supposed to hold fast to, and there's an ongoing obedience to that conviction. So we're to hold fast to it, and we're to continue in it. So Barnabas comes and says, you got to hold fast. You now have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You now have been saved by the grace of God. And your lives are different. I can see it on your face. In fact, that's the meaning of the end of the phrase, that you could see it visually on their faces, on their countenance, that they had been changed. So he says, you got to stay firm with that, but you've also got to continue in it. Now, the reason that was important was because Antioch, was not an easy place to be a Christian. I found a quote from a historian last night that described it this way. Fashion was the only law, pleasure was the only pursuit, and the splendor of dress and furniture were the only distinction of the citizens of Antioch. The arts of luxury were honored, the serious and manly virtues were the subject of ridicule, the contempt for female modesty and reverence announced the universal corruption of the capital of the East. In other words, it was very carnal. Morality was ridiculed. Sensuality was promoted. Pleasure was the end goal. So it makes sense that as Barnabas comes into Antioch, he says, all right, look around at the culture. What do we need? We need to stay fixed in our convictions. Because everything in the culture is going to fight against what you now believe, just like it does now. 
And he says, as you remain fixed in your convictions, you now have to continue on. See, the difference in the verbs is very important. You, you, you stay fixed. You stay locked in. You don't waver in what you believe. You stand on the word of God. You believe in Jesus Christ. You walk by the Holy Spirit. All the things we know as believers, you got to stay fixed in that. There can't be any wavering. But as you do that, you have to continue to live. And you have to continue to influence the people that are around you to do the exact same things. Now, we know from this setting that the believers needed that and they needed to encourage each other. So there was a strengthening process. There was an influencing process because if they didn't do that, they could have fallen away from the Lord. So the first thing Barnabas does, look at verse 23, is to encourage them with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now look at the second thing he does in verse 24. Look at the example that he establishes because the Spirit of God, oh, I'd love the Spirit of God to describe me this way and you this way. The Spirit describes him as full of the Holy Spirit and faith. In other words, his life was completely, absolutely, unequivocally yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. There was no, uh, there was no hesitation. There was no holding back. There was no, well, I'll give God part of my time and not all of my time. The only way to be full, notice that word, full of the Holy Spirit is to be completely yielded to him. How do we know that? Because what's the first name of the Holy Spirit? Holy, right? He's holy. God will not occupy a place with his holiness where holiness is not present. God will not fully occupy a place where there is still sin and where there is still hesitation of faith and where there is still carnality and where there is still self, which is why the Bible tells us, and we use this verse all the time, Die to self, how often? Tell me, daily. Because sin creeps in, and temptation creeps in, and self creeps in. So every morning we've got to say, no, this is not my life, this is yours. I'm bought with the price of Christ's blood. You own me. I'm yielded to you. Now fill me. Because being filled part way, which is kind of an oxymoron, doesn't really help us. Think about how powerful it was for these new Christians in Antioch to see someone like Barnabas walk in. They were in the middle of a very pagan, secular, selfish, self-indulgent culture. And here comes Barnabas, and he is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he's unwaveringly committed to the Lord. And he comes in and he starts encouraging and praying for them and challenging them and teaching the word of God. And then a couple days later, Paul shows up. Boy, he was all personality. And Paul, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, now he comes in and his life's changed. And he knows that Judaism was not the way to salvation, that Christ is the way to salvation. And Paul and Barnabas, for a year, influenced these people. Can you imagine how different that was for them? How much they said, we got to get to church. We got to go be around those men because they are walking with the Lord. Paul was even so bold because he was so confident in his faith in Christ to say, follow me. Look at my imitation of Christ. You want to imitate somebody, imitate me. Can you imagine being able to say that? Imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And that's not being arrogant or brash or or, or having that. It's just to say, look, 
I'm following Christ so fully that you can watch my example to know how to do it if you don't know how to do it. It's no wonder, look at the next phrase, that with Barnabas and Paul's influence, that many more were brought to the Lord. This is such an important responsibility that we have to steadfastly encourage each other to remain true to the Lord. But it's also a quality that we need to have in the people that are around us. The people that are around you and me need to be steadfastly encouraging you and me to remain true to the Lord. They need to encourage us. They need to strengthen us because we can so easily be pulled back. And how can you and I expect to be resolute if we're surrounded by people that are part of the culture and influencing us to participate in it? Now, that's a hard question, and I don't ask it lightly. But how can we expect to be resolute and remain true to the Lord if the influences in our life are saying, pull away from the Lord rather than going toward him? If they're saying resist conviction, resist what the word says rather than yielding to it. That's not to say we're never around unbelievers. We have a very distinctive calling to be in the world and to influence people and to draw them toward Christ and to speak the gospel. I'm not saying isolationism. I'm saying influence. Who is influencing you this morning? Because if we sacrifice our convictions to be around them, then they're already persuading us away from the Lord. And how can we defend that relationship to the Lord? How can we say, well, I need to be with this person and I'm going to compromise my moral standards so I can reach them? God never calls us to do that. He says, preach the gospel, be instant in season, out of season, rebuke and command, tell people the gospel. I will do the work. My Holy Spirit will do the work of conviction. But you don't have to compromise your conviction to be part of that. Now, that leads us to a third characteristic quickly. Turn over to 2 Timothy 4 just for a minute. Let's get to one more passage real quick here. The third characteristic that we need to exemplify in ourselves, and at the same time, we need to seek out in those around us. Characteristic three is we cannot love the things of the world. We cannot love the things of the world. Now, at the end of 2 Timothy 4, because this is the last chapter of his letter to Timothy, Paul is listing down in verse 9 some of the people who would partner with him in ministry. He's challenging Timothy to stay true to his calling and to stay true to the work. And in the first part, chapter 4, he describes the characteristics of the last days that not only will the world be engulfed in self-indulgence, but even many Christians... Even the church will not want sound doctrine. They won't want um, the word of God to be preached and taught. They want an easy believism. They want biblical truth that's subjective, that gives a lot of latitude, that doesn't call us to anything hard. And then Paul describes himself as a drink offering. He says, I'm poured out. I've been, I've been poured out to God. He knows he's about to be executed. And he looks at his life and he says, honestly, I can say, I have run the race well. I've finished the course. I, I'm at the end, Timothy. Now it's up to you. Now it's up to the next generation to go forward. But, but I've given myself fully to this work. And that stands in very stark contrast to what we read in chapter 10. 
excuse me, in verse 10. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There are only three times when Demas is mentioned in Scripture. In Colossians 4, Paul talks about him as traveling with him and Luke. In Philemon 1, which was written before 2 Timothy 4, in Philemon 1, Paul calls him a fellow worker in the work of ministry. Now, Paul was a highly intelligent man. And he was a great judge of character. He was able to look at somebody and to evaluate exactly where they were with the Lord. He was very quick and spirit-led to be able to judge whether something was authentic or inauthentic. We even know that he got very frustrated with John Mark because John Mark at one point said, I want to go back and be with my family and take a break from ministry. Paul said, you're not worthy to work on this team. You need to go away. And he and Barnabas actually had a dispute about that. So Paul was no fool. He was very intelligent, he was very wise, he was a very good judge of character. So he would not have put Demas on his team. He would not have called Demas a fellow worker. He would not have traveled with Demas and Luke around doing ministry if he didn't believe in the authentic sincerity of Demas's faith when they were working together. So it must have been incredibly heartbreaking. It must have torn Paul apart to write this sentence in verse 10. That Demas had deserted him. Not because he was scared of being executed. Not because the work of ministry was getting too hard. That wasn't the reason Demas left. Look at the reason Demas left. It says, because he loves this world. Now for someone who wrote, for me to live is Christ. The only reason I'm here is to live for Christ. Paul wrote that. For him to then look at Demas... And to say, this fellow worker, this man I labored with in ministry, has abandoned his convictions because he loves the world so much. That must have just devastated him. And this was not some brief fling. This was not, well, I just need some time. Let me go. Oh, come on. We've been working really hard. Let me just live a little. That's not the meaning of the word. The word love there is the word agapeo, which is the strongest word that the Greek language has for love. It means to to be deeply in love with and to be content with. So Demas didn't just have a fling with the world. He said, I love the world. It is in my heart and I want it more than I want ministry. Now, we don't know what drew him back to put such a priority to run away from his convictions, but we certainly can look at our own lives and ask what we're prioritizing that pulls us away from the Lord. What are the vices, and I I didn't know another word to use there, what are the vices that we're known for? Hopefully the answer is none. Hopefully there's not anything we're known for that is separate from the Lord. But, But are there areas in your life, are there areas in my life, where we clearly value what the world values more than we value the call to holiness and being set apart. We have to really assess that honestly. You know why? Because the Lord knows exactly what's in our heart and mind. I can hide it from you. You can hide it from me. We can hide it from each other. We can have our little private vices, and we can have our Christian life that is our appearance. And we can fool a lot of people, but we cannot fool the Lord. And the Lord is able to look into our hearts. He knows every thought and intent of our mind. So if there are things that we are holding on to or things that we're even doing publicly, we have to bring them to the Lord. How would our friends describe us? 
What would they say is our measure of spiritual influence? How would they look at us? How do they describe us? If we sat down a panel of 10 people that are, that are close to us, that are friends, either outside the church or inside the church, what, what is Rhodes really like? What, what do you think drives him? What motivates him? What, what are his passions? What are the things that he really wants out of life? What are the things that he, that he values highly? What would they say? That'd be a scary little panel, right? Because there are things in our life that are not sanctified before the Lord. And one way we need to evaluate this is who are we surrounding ourselves with? Are they people that bring honor to the Lord's name? Are they people that are driving us closer to the Lord? Or people that are driving us away? And then look at a fourth quality and we'll pray. And this fourth quality is so important in terms of how we influence people. We need to be and we need to look for people in our relationships that edify We need to be people that edify others, and we need to be around people that edify us. So much of what we say, so much of what we do to persuade people is what we say and how we say it, because words are very powerful. They can build up or they can tear down. They can encourage or they can damage. We can tell people about the love and mercy of God and the hope of our salvation, or we can drive them away from God by not having the fruit of, sp- of the Spirit in how we speak. Think of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gen- uh, gentleness, self-control. I think I forgot one, right? Goodness, was it? Anyone? Goodness? Okay, I forgot goodness, sorry. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Did I? Faithfulness. Good. You guys know more than me. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Yeah, I'm singing the song. I know the books of the Bible because I'm singing the song. Hey, whatever works, right? Do those words describe what comes out of our mouths? And do those words describe what comes out of our friends' mouths? The people that are influencing us, the people that are speaking into our lives, are they full of love and joy and peace? I'm not going to go through all of them because I'll forget again. But really, seriously, are they full of that? Is there an edifying relationship going on there? Look at this. Turn back just a couple pages to Ephesians 4 just for a minute, a passage we know really well. Let's just read these verses and we're going to pray. Ephesians 4. Look at 29 to 30. There is no equivocation in these verses, okay? Read these exactly as they are because that's exactly how they're written. That's how the Spirit wants us to read them. And look at the demonstrative words that he uses here. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There is a connection between verse 29 and verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. For us to have a holy, edifying influence on other people, and for us to be influenced by holy, edifying people, one of the primary characteristics of those relationships needs to be what's described here. 
No unwholesome communication out of our mouths. You know what that word means? It means putrid. It means rotten and corrupt and worthless. Let nothing that is putrid come out of your mouth. Paul writes about it in Philippians 4. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men, not just other believers. Let your gentleness be known to all men and whatsoever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and have a good reputation, think on those things. Why? Because what we think eventually comes out of our mouths. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what goes in here comes out here. And if it's not pure and holy and true and righteous and honorable and of a good reputation, when it goes in here, it's eventually going to come out of here. And as I influence people, I'm going to influence them in the wrong way. And if I'm constantly surrounding myself with people that are not putting Philippians 4, 8 into their heads, then they're going to influence me in the same way. Do people describe us as sarcastic and biting and negative and destructive? Or are they say, when I'm around that person, they are truthful and they're encouraging and they strengthen me and spiritually and personally, they build me up. The same evaluation applies to the people that were around. What comes out of their mouths? Are they rough and cynical, especially about the Lord? Do, do they kind of question our convictions and, and, and criticize and undermine other people? Or is there a kindness to them? Is there a gentleness to them? Is there a love to them? Are we strengthened? Are we encouraged? Is it like a breath of fresh air when we're around those people because they build us up? You see, what people say to us affects our faith and it affects our mind and it affects our walk and it affects our self-image. This is so true for high school and college students and young singles especially that what they're hearing from their peers will affect their self-image and it'll affect their convictions and it'll affect their walk. And we see that time and time again. We see people whose lives are now influenced in the wrong way by their peers. Is it loving and gracious, or is it hardened and critical? Does the typical conversation we have build us up spiritually, and are we building other people up, or does it tear down and cause destruction? One of the reasons Barnabas was so effective was that he was serious about the things of the Lord. He was resolute, nothing frivolous. There's nothing stronger than consistency of conviction. And that's what he brought to this mess in Antioch. He brought a resoluteness. He wasn't flippant. He wasn't sarcastic. He wasn't making light of it. That doesn't strengthen people spiritually. That just shows immaturity. He came and he strengthened the people. Listen, we're called to redeem the time, right? Why? Because the days are evil. They're getting worse. And we have to guard ourselves in that environment. We have to influence people for the Lord and we have to be influenced by people for the Lord because the time is way too short for us to be messing around and not making a significant difference with the Lord. Think about the impact that those unnamed people from Cyprus and Cyrene, as they walked into Antioch and they saw the Jews kind of being to themselves and only talking to other Jews. And the Spirit of God said to them, you need to go talk to the Gentiles. 
Think about the impact that they had as they committed themselves to persuade people to look at Jesus. Listen, that can be you and me. That can be you and me. We don't have to be a Barnabas. We don't have to be a Paul. We just have to be the unnamed people from Cyprus and Cyrene that listen to the Lord and the hand of the Lord can be on us. Listen now, on exactly the same way that it was on them. The hand of the Lord in the same way it was in Acts 11 in Antioch as thousands of people got saved. The hand of the Lord can be on us in exactly the same way. If we will be yielded to him and we will be people that influence for Christ. Let's close our eyes. I want to encourage you as we end this service just to evaluate your relationships. Are the people that are around you increasing your faith? Are they strengthening your conviction? Are they bringing you to greater holiness or are they taken away from it? You've got to honestly evaluate now. This is between you and the Lord. I, I, I don't know, and I don't need to know. The people that are influencing you, are they bringing you closer to Christ or dragging you away from him? There may be some challenging decisions that we have to make as to who we're going to allow to influence our lives. And then, as we influence other people, what are we bringing to the table? What are, what are we doing for them? Are we telling people that don't know Christ about his goodness and his grace and his mercy? Do they see that modeled in our lives? Are we an encourager? Are we influencing for Christ? Are we stirring people to be more holy and to trust more fervently? And to pray more passionately? Or are we detracting? This is something only you know. This is something only you and the Lord can deal with together. And I'm not going to make a big long appeal this morning. We're not going to have people raise their hands or come forward. This is just between you and the Lord. What needs to happen? in terms of those that influence you and in terms of how you influence. Because God has given us a tremendous calling. And we have a great responsibility to fulfill that every single day. Oh, the hand of the Lord can be on us, church. The hand of the Lord can be on us as believers. Father, we ask you to do a work in our lives and in our midst to bring us to conviction on the areas that need to change, the relationships that need to change. Lord, it doesn't mean we have to abandon them necessarily, but we do have to be more influential. Speaking truth and love, telling people about your grace and mercy, challenging sin. Lord, expose the relationships in our lives where we're being influenced adversely. Give us wisdom to know what to do with those. And Lord, may each and every one of us every day, as we yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit,
be someone that influences greatly with those that you have given us around us. Lord, may you be magnified. May you be glorified in this process. May, may you be the one that gets the attention of our hearts. Because we want to serve you. You have redeemed us out of sin. You have delivered us forever. We praise your name this morning that you have done that work. Now, as your ambassadors and as your witnesses, we go forward and we go out to serve you. We praise you and we love you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.